0: Hello and welcome to The Dissidence Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Liberal Values. This is where we talk about how we can strive for a world in which freedom and reason are at the forefront of all human society. Hi, welcome to The Dissidence Podcast, and today we have Elizabeth Weiss as our guest. And Elizabeth is a professor professor of anthropology at San Jose State University, her books include Reading the Bones, Activity, Biology, and Culture, that was in 2017, and more recently, in 2020, Repatriation and Erasing the Past, with attorney James Springer, the focus of which is repatriation laws and the ideology behind them. In September 2024, she will begin a one-year faculty fellowship at the Center for Academic Pluralism through Heterodox Academy, and that is one of the things that we want to talk about today, is your affiliation with Heterodox, and in fact, a presentation that you're going to do in a few weeks. So welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you. I'm not sure, um, maybe, I, maybe I caught this wrong, but I am already at Heterodox Academy, okay. so I started in September 2023, and will go till the, until uh, 2024. Okay.
0: That explains why you're in New York. I wondered why you were in yes. New York and not yes. California. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your appointment at Heterodox and that you're going to give a presentation that's relevant to something else that we want to talk about.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a uh, professor of anthropology at San Jose State, as you mentioned, and I decided to apply for the uh, faculty fellow at Heterodox Academy um, while I was at San Jose State because of various uh, issues surrounding the repatriation and reburial of skeletal remains and hoping to jumpstart um, my ability uh, um, to conduct research again. And so one of the things that I decided to do um, for Heterodox Academy is to look at museums, um, exhibits, and whether they display a variety of perspectives on their On their walls, right, Um, and how they display the remains and the artifacts, and if they are too homogenous in their viewpoint, to suggest to them um, ways to increase viewpoint diversity in museum exhibits. So um, that's that is my big project here. But the other aspect of being here um, in New York City and um, with heterodox is just to broaden my reach um, to let people know my, um, my concerns, which are concerns for many anthropologists, I believe, even so sometimes they won't admit to it, about how the field is changing. The field is changing in ways that will basically gut the universities of collections, both teaching and research collections, empty museum walls, and also, gut our ability to ask questions in terms of um, sex differences um, and um, how those biological sex differences may play out in both um, play out in the present but also were understood and played out in the past. So those are some of the main themes. Um, What my first presentation at Heterodox Academy occurred a couple weeks ago now I believe um, at their opening um, and it talked about the importance of skeletal remains and the importance of studying these skeletal remains to and to have viewpoint diversity in how we think these remains should be preserved or um, reburied. Uh, My next event at Heterodox will be. a webinar that is a uncanceling event of a, t- a panel that was um, meant to be given at the American Anthropological Association, which is the largest anthropology conference in in America, um, that was combined with the Canadian Anthropological Society, so it was a joint conference to be given in November, and. The panel, which was put together by Kathleen Lowry, who's an anthropologist in the University of Alberta, um, was to make the claim that biological sex is still an important uh, analytical variable for anthropologists, both anthrop- physical anthropologists and cultural anthropologists, and that we should not abandon this concept of binary biological sex. Um, we That's not to say that we should ignore gender or that gender is binary, but that rather that these are two distinct things, um, sex and gender, and although they sometimes overlap, they don't always, um, and that the biological binary is an important concept to understand and to look at when looking at humans, whether it's in the past or the present.
0: Yeah, so I was reading the, uh, some of the materials that you sent me about the back and forth between the Anthropological Association and yourself. And, um, you know, I was, I, you know, some of the, some of your responses captured the same thing. You know, one of the things that, that I read was, um, you know, they said, uh, we should be, um, let's see, uh, some academics have have even started to explicitly label ancient human skeletons as non-binary or gender-neutral, um, and I I don't really. I mean, I'm I'm a little confused about this. So I'm not a I'm not a biologist or an anthropologist. I'm a psychologist, you know, a, a, an experimental psychologist. Sure. So can you explain to me how a Bone, I guess, or a skeleton, or something like that, could be labeled
1: non-binary. Yes. Yeah, so, um, the and in my talk on which um which was canceled and is now going to be on, I believe November eighth, <laughs> um, I will be talking about uh, about this issue about what how do we determine uh, whether remains were non. Binary with bones, and I would say we cannot do that. That there is no way to look at a skeleton and say this person identified as a female but was actually a biological male. We, when we look at skeletal remains, whether they are, you know, um, Neanderthal remains from, um, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, to the Paleo Indians, seven thousand years ago, to Forensic cases of modern people, what we can determine by looking at the skeletal remains is sex, biological, binary sex, male or female. But some anthropologists have now um, moved away from that and claimed that you that when you cannot determine the sex, that's likely because the individual was non-binary. But of course, that's not the case. If you can't determine the sex, it just means that the f- remains were fragmeri- fragmentary, excuse me, or maybe the remains belong to a young individual prepubescent, um, and therefore maybe you need ancient DNA and not just looking at bones. Um, or maybe you're just not very good at assessing sex, right? <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. So, so just um, to be
0: clear, if I choose to live as a man for the next however many years that I'm alive, it is not going to change my bones.
1: It's not going to change your bones. Now, medical transitioning may have some negative effects on bones, but it won't erase the ability of an anthropologist to determine whether you're a male or a female. And I think that that's an important aspect. And one of the things is that for me, it's a very backward um, way of thinking when anthropologists, bioarchaeologists look at a skeleton and say, oh, this is this individual was likely non-binary or was um, likely um, a female who was presenting as male because artifacts were aligned with the other sex. Because basically what they're sometimes doing is they're saying, well, you find a skeleton, it's a female skeleton osteologically from the bones, but the artifacts aren't what we would expect a female to have. Well, my conclusion would be maybe females weren't that restricted in their labor as we had thought, and that actually it's likely that females and males were doing many things, and therefore we were incorrect in assuming that sexual division of labor was so uh, narrowly defined in any one culture. That would be my way of looking at it, because biological sex is a universal it doesn't change from culture to culture, but sex differences and activity patterns, what women do obviously does change. And so same with what men do. And then there's much overlap. I mean, one of the things you can think about is like, um, you know, let's say you find a skeleton and it has a, a, a pouch of things that would be considered medicinal. Well, this could be or a, you know a male shaman or a doctor but it could also be the equivalent of a um you know um female who is looking uh, was helping women have her th- have their children right or so carrying,
0: carrying medication from a doctor
1: there too yeah, there's else. so many other possibilities besides erasing sex <laughs> um you know um you know it could be that, that culture had doulas that had medicinal pouches, right? right. <laughs> Things like that. Um, so I do think that it, it's kind of, ironically, it's kind of a backward idea, uh, way of thinking um, that the solution is that, oh, if you find artifacts that don't match with the sex, then it's likely that that person wasn't that sex. No, it's likely that people did a lot more varied things than we had previously and, thought. And that is a bias worth
0: talking about, right? How Absolutely.
1: Historically,
0: in the modern historical times, maybe we had considered people's roles or um, you know, their activities, much too narrowly and that is an example of a bias that's worthy of discussing and i mean you you gave the example and one of the things you'd written about was right i i had forgotten about this but they found a, a female viking right yeah and it was this big celebratory thing like oh my gosh you know it was a woman who you know was what and and yet um i mean has there been since then this effort to re-label the female Viking as non-binary
1: yes there has Has actually been that effort and it it, is again it's this kind of um, effort um, just detracts from you know the the other option which is that people do a lot of things and that cultures change sex roles change we've we see this in our own lifetime right. and I don't see why we wouldn't assume that in yeah. the past. I also think that, uh, sorry, I also think that there's sometimes, uh, anthropologists sometimes, um, and I admit I'm guilty of this myself, sometimes we view past people in stereotypical views sure. and we have to remember that in, people in the past were individuals the same as now. There were likely people who, you know, were the dissidents or the heretics in the past, too. So I think that that's an important aspect to remember.
0: And to suggest that a woman who fought, maybe Helen of Troy, uh, a woman who was willing to fight or to sacrifice or to lead, um, you know, an army, um, you know, something like that, uh, must Think of herself as a man in order to do that is also very
1: sexist it is, it is extremely it's, it's,
0: sexist
1: it's very sexist and if you think about the some of the great women leaders that have that we have seen you know in historic times i don't think that they were i don't think margaret thatcher or golda Meir right. was thinking that they had to be a man to be you know a great political leader and I think to think that in the past you had to, that these people had to think that way is, is quite frankly, a Texas way of viewing, viewing archaeology.
0: Um, so I have the anthropological ethics up here. Uh, just, I'm just looking at it, you know, so be open and honest regarding your work. It feels a little uh, sort of what we're talking about right now. Um But another one is, um, you know, protect and preserve your records. And this feels a little bit like records may be uh, in jeopardy or maybe not. uh, You know, I'm wondering, like, what's the next uh, generation? Like your graduate students, graduate students, right? What are they going to be looking at? And are they going to have to revisit a whole body of work um, because we have, you know, sort of like, are they going to be making fun of us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hopefully not too much but um i i think it's quite interesting that one of the aspects of anthropological ethics both in you know the AAA a and also the society for american archaeology and so forth is preservation of the record preservation of your data preservation of the work and yet so much of their of the modern ideology that they have tacked on is our acts to destroy this. So if you think about reburials, how, you know, you're talking about li- the literal um, destruction of collections. Um, that's not preservation. Um, there's a movement to um, destroy other data forms like x-rays, photographs. This is not Preservation, and whenever i've brought this up, um, I have been kind of villainized um, and I've been said well you know you're not treating the you're not treating human remains ethically by talking about preservation of x rays but they're they're it's almost like they're schizophrenic right so they have these these two very different types of um ethics that don't mesh and that's true when you're looking at it ideologically so the importance of understanding evolution and biology and yet the erasure of concept of biological concepts um, like binary sex and also when you're talking about literally the the materials in hand so preserving the skeletal collections on one hand and then the other hand um, working to have those collections, whether they're affiliated or not with a tribe destroyed, so I think this is a very um, you know un, un um you know unitable type of actions these are these are opposed to each other, and yet they're all in the same list of ethics, which I think is quite an interesting thing. I think that what we'll see in anthropology in future generations is that there'll be less research that is done on um, skeletal remains, on um, topics that are uh, controversial, and, the, and anthropology will morph into um, a kind of uh, sociology um, type of field. Uh, political sociology, with very little of the of the origin of anthropology the the you know wanting to understand different cultures and different people from uh evolutionary and biological and cultural perspective
0: I am seeing the same thing in uh, in psychology and um, you know sort of this uh, same kind of uh, Dualism, you know, this this sort of schizophrenic, you know, view of, um, I mean, I think I mentioned to you, I was canceled for a research project also, and the same idea. It's like, well, no, language use is the hot topic in, you know, right at the time three years ago. This is really a hot topic, and research would be the safest way to study something that would be offensive. And uh, yet, you know, we're told that we can't study something that might be offensive within an experimental paradigm. Um, and so I see that in what you're talking about, with you know, it's almost a book banning kind of thing, a book burning kind of thing. So this, this sort of, um, I hadn't thought about it that way, this sort of, like you said, the sort of schizophrenic view where I'm going to hold these ideals, and then I'm going and, and, and these. And, you know, the, the hypocrisy, um, I think, is, is, a, is a common theme among all of this. And, and I, look, you and I probably hold hypocritical views in, in our lives, right? In our personal daily lives, we probably catch ourselves believing two things that are not, you know, totally uh, uh, congruent with one another. At the same time, once, you know, like, uh, sometimes I just have to say I can't explain that, right? Right. Why is it that a, an organization, you know, can't embrace that also and say, look, I can't, we can't really explain why sometimes we feel icky, (laughs) for lack of a better (laughs) word, icky about, um, you know, we have bones that, that maybe should be, you know, that maybe we should not have at one time, you know, accessed without permission and stuff, and that doesn't feel right. And it feels hypocritical that we're also uh, that we also gained knowledge from from those bones, and we we'd like to figure out how to feel better about that. As and instead, I feel like this is very uh, naive. You know, we see this in our in our undergraduate students. You know, they they think that. Uh, you know they learn something and or they you know they're the generation that has all the answers, right? And so, you know, they're never gonna change their minds and they're never gonna grow and learn and, and have a different opinion. This is their this is the way the world works. And and to to suggest, this goes along with what you were saying about the, you know, what we were saying about gender and sex in historically, the idea that the values or the ideas that we have now are the most correct will not need to be revised, um, whatever. And so, therefore, we should get rid of, we should destroy, um, you know, the past or inhibit the research, research of the future because we believe that we've got it now. We're the, yeah. this is we're perfect now. Anthropology is, you know, it's like oh we're evolving. Well, what are you evolving into? Psychology is also evolving very much into, as you say, a soci- sociological you know, sort of political commentary kind of thing, as opposed to actual, uh, you know, primary research. And it, it makes me sad for, uh, for the future. And it makes me sad for you also. I know that you're in a very, right now, since you're in heterodox, you're very uh, protected from your, you know, from some of the, you had a support system around you. I don't know what it's going to be like when you go back to San Jose State.
1: Well, uh, fortunately, I'm not going back to San Jose. (laughs) Um, I'm retiring at the end of May 2024. That was a requirement of my settlement. I saw no reason to um, continue on there. The collection, the skeletal collections are being uh, reburied. Um, the x-rays will literally be burned. And if they say that I'm lying, I have lots of um, back and forth uh, emails and texts that say that. Um, So um, I've been told that I cannot use any data that has been previously collected to do any research on um, skeletal remains of Native Americans, which is just an absurdity, since there's no way that they can control Research from other from people around the world who did collected data on these same bones, and I I said I'm done, um, and so I you know drew up a settlement that I thought was um, was fair to me. I I honestly can say that I think that it was a win-win for both of me and the university. I don't think that. They did bad out of the settlement, but I don't think I did bad either. It allowed me to come to heterodox um, on full salary with retaining my retirement. And it will allow me to retire in 2024 with the emeritus status. And there was no non-disclosure. And I think that, um, I think it was, it was the right thing to do. I, you know, it's always hard to say, you know, like, you know, why didn't I go to court? Why, you know, why not continue to do that um, battle? But my question to myself was what would I have won? And I don't think I would have won anything, even if the judgment was in my favor because the skeletal remains would have been gone. And so in a and, sense, it wasn't worth, it was not worth the fight anymore on that level. And I decided to take the fight up to a higher level Um to continue to write about repatriation issues and, um, and also the other issues in anthropology and academia in general to try to save anthropology. I might not be successful, but I'm going to continue to try because uh, I love anthropology. I, I think it's a beautiful field. I think the study of skeletal remains is uh, enlightening. I think that um it's a shame that we seem to be going backward to this kind of concern of oh human remains are somehow similar to humans and therefore should be treated like um like humans in the sense of we you know getting a, a institutional review board approval <laughs> you know right. um And um, I think that what we should be looking at is regardless of how these remains were obtained, putting them back in the ground is not going to do anything except bury data, bury science. And there's a very distinct difference, I think, um, with recently deceased individuals where people are literally you know, making decisions about their, their loved ones. <laughs> and I would hope that many people who are listening to this will think, well, maybe I should actually donate my body to science um, because that's what I plan to do and that's what my family plans to do. And I think it's it is the only way we're going to have skeletal collections. But there is a difference between saying, you know, a, a mother who just lost their child and is going through that grieving process, and a skeletal remains from individuals who died even fifty years ago. I just think there is a difference between that. If there is no immediate family, I think that that this is a a, a material, a resource rather than a, a human living being or a human with attached memories to, to someone. That's part
0: of that, that sort of like, you know, internal struggle that we all go through, right? Like what's the line and, you know, if it's our relative versus, you know, an unknown person's relative. And, and, and I think that that, that's, that's, there's value in having that discussion as opposed to just sort of a, you know, a blanket, um, you know, uh, I don't know, value uh judgment. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is my personal, my personal opinion, uh after three, almost three years now of getting, after being canceled. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, you said how much you love anthropology and, and I feel the same, same about my field. I, you know, I just, and, and it feels to me, this is very much my feeling <laughs> that it is often the people who love the field the most, that seem to be the most comfortable talking about the uncomfortable thing. and it feels like the people who who are just sort of going through the motions in the field um, that seem to be more comfortable just latching on to you know a a value or an ideology and um, maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't. I'm. I want to be careful to to not to suggest that there's anything personality-wise or you know in you know that it's some characteristic because I don't think it is. I think it's human nature to go along with the crowd, right? And and the latest, and and it does take a particular constitution to be a dissident. Um, at the same time, I think one of those constitutions may in fact be a uh, a different kind of attachment to the field um a deeper love um and uh you know i i i imagine from the way that you talk this sort of this true attachment to those artifacts and a love and respect and an honor you know what an honor it was to handle uh those artifacts <clears throat>
1: I would say, I think that that's a really interesting point because I'd say like, you know, some people have said, oh, you know, it was disrespectful for me to call the skeletal collection old friends, but that's what they were to me. And you can think of it as, you know, some people, you know, librarians sometimes would refer to their book, to book collections as their old friends, right? So I don't think that, I don't think that that's disrespectful at all and i can see where like certain times when i see certain images i think oh that's not yeah i would never do that working. that's yeah. tacky or disrespectful or you know such as you know um i i personally wouldn't like take a skeleton and dress it up right like funny you know put a funny outfit on it i i just think that that's a little tacky um so i'm not say you know so i think that what we have to view how we have to view things is, if in is with that person's intent. So if I saw a researcher who had done something like put a hat on a, a, a skull, I maybe wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't um I wouldn't automatically assume that that was meant as disrespectful or so forth. I would think you know. I wonder why he did that, or, you know, and then, and then listen to their explanation. And if it made sense to me, I'd be like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, So I do think that, that there's this kind of, there's only one way to understand things. There's only one way to treat something respectfully. It's just not true. And we can look throughout history and prehistory and see that um, burial patterns and Disposal of of bodies took for many different forms, and I guarantee you that those individuals were not thinking, "Oh, how can I disrespect um, these individuals?" Um, as opposed to, "This is our our tradition." And yet, I also think that there are times. I guarantee you that if you took like a large sam a large population in the past, let's say large. Group of Native Americans who were uh, pre-contact Native Americans um, who were living in you know villages, semi-sedentary, and they were seeing when people died and how those people were being interred. Maybe some of them were like, you know what? I really don't want that for myself because that's human nature too. It's just like to have different views. And I've told this story before, but um, my grandfather. I never met um he's he was born uh i believe in eighteen ninety six and he um had a lifelong fear of being buried alive. He always said he did not want to be buried he had a lifelong fear of being buried alive, which was not uncommon in that era. He's German, yeah and um when he died, um, his wife, my grandmother, um, and one of his sons, he my mother's the youngest of 12, so one of the seven, one of her seven brothers were insistent that the grandfather, my grandfather, um, Gustav, would receive a burial. And they buried him, which he never wanted. <laughs> and they buried him in a white suit which he would have hated, <laughs> but this was—they thought they were. This was their grieving process. Now, because it's Germany, um, a lot of graves get um, exhumed to make space for new ones. Um, although he was under um, historic preservation because of his um, because of his artwork, and also because one of because of the one of his sons. Um, was quite a well known german philosopher um, he, the my uncle who um was supposed to make sure that the historic preservation was taken care of continuously um he let it slip and the my grandfather was exhumed he was cremated and so my thing is you know in the end got what he wanted. <laughs> he didn't know it because he was dead. But it's you know, some people may say, oh my goodness, that's terrible that he was exhumed and, you know, he was buried and now he's exhumed and then cremated. But we have to have a viewpoint that that individuals are individuals and had different perspectives throughout history and prehistory. And it is not upon us to try to figure out what their each individual's perspective was, it is upon us as anthropologists, as physical anthropologists, I'm talking now, to study those remains, to try to reconstruct the past in our in the fullest way and most accurate way possible. And that's how we respect them. I
0: again, you know, I, I see similar kinds of things in my um in in my field. Um, so I was reading, you know, so you wrote, um, you know, uh, in a field schools, you know, schools run by anthrop- anthropologists, you know, at sort of progressive places like, you know, where, where, where you were in University of Washington and that kind of thing. So, and I was reading, this was news to me about excluding menstruating women to view some Native American, um, bones and, and that kind of thing. And I was thinking to myself, well, how about no men touching any female bones because of the patriarchy? Or we could we do like no Muslim should touch Jewish bones or vice versa, or no black person touching the bones of a white person, a no white person. touching I mean, how how far can we go with this? Why not ban women from the field altogether if they can only do their work during certain times of a month or, you know, or are only allowed to be around certain bones? During, you know, uh, why ban women? And here's, I mean, this is a really provocative question. I don't expect you to answer this question. But what about uh, a man who's a trans, you know, transitions to a woman? Is that woman now? So, so, you know, sociologically, a woman allowed to touch bones? And I I mean, this is, is. it's, it's, it's just ridiculous to suggest that you could draw some kind of line like that.
1: It is, it's absolutely absurd. And um, these kind of restrictions on field school uh, in field schools have been happening for quite a while. Berkeley is another place that had some of these. And basically the concept is that because it's the Native Americans who um, are requesting these um, restrictions, that we cannot judge that. I would say that, um, you know, I... I literally have made the argument um, in classes and and other settings and NAGPRA settings that because, would we say the same thing if it was somebody who was prejudiced against somebody's skin color? And I I would sure hope not. I would sure hope not. Um, One of the things that they did at San Jose State is, um, is that when they locked me out of the curation facility, to keep me away from the skeletal remains, and then they wrote up a new set of protocols for handling the remains. I had written the original, you know, the set since 2004. I should say not the original, but since I was there, I wrote protocols for that, and um, and um, they rewrote them. And one of the protocols included a line that said menstruating personnel are not allowed in the curation facility and not allowed to handle skeletal remains. And I said, this is a Title IX violation. And if it's not removed, I will file a Title IX suit. It was removed because of that. And they even wrote down like no, no oh, menstruating personnel were negatively affected. They couldn't, they didn't even wanna say women, right? But like in a sense, if you are if you are menstruating it is nobody's business whether you are or not you you are not required to tell anybody and it's sexist to assume that and it boils down to the concept of menstruating menstruation is dirty and therefore, you cannot be with us. And it's not only handling the bones in field school; it's also you can't eat with the the rest of the group. The dishes have to be wa- washed separately. This is outright sexism. It's a shameful thing for anybody to engage in this type of behavior. And if the tribes who are interested in upholding the sexism um, are not willing to let this sexism go by the wayside. My answer would be that we shouldn't be collaborating with them, mm-hmm. just like I wouldn't collaborate with somebody who held prejudices against people of different skin colors, different races, different religions. I think the, these, these are um, you know, prejudices, and yet it seems that anthropologists are perfectly fine with accepting these um, prejudices them on the wall. By the way, yeah, and yeah, and, and basically, um, as long as it hasn't come from uh, a Western culture, they're fine with it. Another example is one of the the databases that is being created for artifacts, and I can't—I'd re- have to look up the exact um, tribes that were involved, but they were concerned that the database should. Um, have information from both male and female artifacts in the same data set because females should not be able to get the information about certain male sacred artifacts. This is databases this is this is to me absurd and and um, I think that anthropologists need to step up and say we will not collaborate with efforts that discriminate against people based on sex race religion, etc.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, stepping up is is really the problem. I do think that there are a lot of people who feel this way. I mean, I guess I hope I should say that. I hope. I hope so. You know, it's so hard hearing
1: from them. We're not hearing from them. And like, it's so hard to know, because I know some people are just silent. But I do remember, you know, quite early on in my career at San Jose State, a cultural anthropologist had told me, and she considered herself a feminist. So this was like in 2004 or 5. So she told me, you know, in regards to female students' dress, you know, clothing. She said, I'd rather see my, if I had a daughter, I would rather see her in a full hijab than in a mini skirt like some of our students wear, it looks so slutty. Something along those lines. And my response was, I would rather live in a world where my daughter, if I had one, could wear whatever she wanted. That is feminism. The other is not. It's just anti-Westernism.
0: Um, I was just looking through some of the other. So, uh, oh, I know one of the things that the the anthropologist and the letter from, from that canceled your presentation. Um, this they that they hope to become more unified. Basically, they hope to have less diversity of thought. That's how I read it. Is that how you read it too?
1: Absolutely, and I think this sends a chilling message that anybody who disagrees with the current trend um, will not be invited onto the program. Right. Um, I think it's telling that you, know, you would think that any science should ha- be unified. Um, I think debate and diverse perspectives is key to to understanding the world. And it could be that some of these descendant voices, even if everybody would say, you know, this is, you know, this vanilla ice cream is chocolate. That doesn't mean that this one person who says, no, it's vanilla, isn't correct. And so I think that you, when you, when you, Remove people for having different opinions. You lose the ability to possibly have the right answer. And although some questions will never have a a single correct answer, some will. You know, of course, there's there some will, and and you're losing that ability. I think there's a real difference between saying, you know. You have to talk on subject, right? So when I'm teaching primate, you know, monkeys, apes, and humans, I'm not going to talk about, um, you know, modern forensic science. So you have to talk on subject, fine. I think it's even okay to say you have to have a certain academic achievement. You know, I mean, these kinds of things are norms. They can be applied evenly justly to everybody. But when you say you have to, you have to say the same things that we want you to say, this is no longer science. It's, it's similar to a cult or a religion then.
0: And, and I have always prided myself and, you know, again, I sort of saw that sprinkled in, you know, what you wrote um, on my, for example, my students not knowing my political affiliation um, to going as over the top, in being uh you know looking at the alternative perspective when we when we designed our experimental research that we must consider this you know and 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 a a lot of times i live in a progressive state where my students are quite progressive and they would you know they didn't want to investigate that side of the hypothesis because they were you know very uh very liberal in their thinking and they didn't want to think about the you know the the opposing view and include that into their study because it wasn't, they felt it wasn't interesting. Now, I think that we are being discouraged openly from that, uh, you know, from from writing that line, from, you know, looking at, at another perspective or from trying to be opaque as opposed to, you know, transparent regarding our back so there's only one we're allowed to have one viewpoint we're allowed to have and we must uh you know transmit that they're asking us to to make sure that we we say those things and um you know we refused as you have we refused to apologize for good science that's just it's like no we don't apologize for good science and that's basically what you know I mean, sort of like your lawsuit, I, you know, it's like it probably wouldn't have done any good. And there's plenty of examples where schools will just continue until you go bankrupt. And then they then they declare, you know, it's like you win, but you're bankrupt. And so it it doesn't really, you know, you don't win anything. It's the same thing with apologies. They're useless. They are just one more way to attack. But, um, you know, that's just another reason to attack people for asking questions. You're just asking questions um and uh it's you know so well you didn't apologize for your question or you didn't apologize correctly for your question or or whatever and i just i do I, it makes me, it made me sad again it makes me sad when i read some of this you know this language what they're willing to put in writing i mean i have it in writing from my university you know you said you have university emails and stuff that diversity of thought is and, and um you know other kinds of diversity like you know first generation college students or Maybe military veterans in my courses, or, or in my uh, research lab, or you know. So it wasn't just ethnic diversity. There was I was talking about other kinds of diversity. Like, look, there's a you know we have ethnic diversity, we have racial diversity in my lab, and we also have other kinds of diversity. And I have it in writing. That's not the kind of diversity that we're interested in. And you know, when you when you're willing to put the kind of thing that the anthropological association was willing to put in writing, when you're willing to put those kinds of things in writing, you. You, you know, you, you. I don't know how else to feel, but sad for our fields.
1: You know. Yeah, I think that that's right. It's a, it's a sadness, and you know, although like my students know my perspective on repatriation because you know, it's kind of hard to hide Yeah. Well, now they do, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. I think the thing is that throughout my career, I ha I, I've I've often. Um, assigned writings that are completely, um, opposed to my own views. So like when I talk about reburial and repatriation, I assign an article that's for it as well, you know, and I don't look for the worst example to to make me look better. I look for the best example to give them some, Thing to think about, and of course, would I love it if all the students were like, "Oh yes, Professor Weiss, you are absolutely right. We should not rebury any bones." Of course, I'd love that, but I don't believe in indoctrination, and I've never given a student a bad grade for disagreeing me uh, with me on a topic that is of an opinion. If I give them a femur, they better label it as a femur and not a humor. (laughs) right. right? But But I don't never felt that I it was my place to tell them what side of this debate that they should fall on, and I've worked with um, researchers who disagree with me on the repatriation issue. I would never want to silence anyone who has a different perspective on me, whether it's about the um, binary sex and gender issue, whether it's about repatriation but you know i that's not my mentality that's not who i am and they Um, need to be able to talk about both sides because they're in the field yeah and they they need to to be able to to think about why they've come to the conclusions that they have right and then also maybe change their mind you know (laughs) I, i i think that Although some things I have not changed my mind with, I have not changed my mind on reburial issues, but there are other issues that I have um, you know changed my opinion on um, some I like people sometimes accuse me of having a particular opinion on on how the americas how and when the Americas were peopled you know um, I yeah, a lot of people think that I—I I think that they, the Americas were peopled very early on. Uh, sorry, very, very late, so very recent, as opposed to very ancient. Um, and I can honestly say I'm up in the air on that issue. Um, but they think because I'm for the preservation of remains that I think that you know there's not really ancient that the the lineages don't go very far back you know I can honestly say that that that, that connection is not, is not a connection that I make I'm just waiting I'm just hoping that they find a 20,000 year old skeleton to look at right but if they don't I'm not convinced yet that the Americas were people 30,000 years ago or 25,000 years ago but I, if there's a new evidence, I'm, you know, so there's a lot of things that I'm actually quite on the fence about, um, and I think that that's okay. I think it's um, a good thing, right? Yeah. We're open so. to
0: more research and and uh, you know, it's it's the opposite. It's you know, the narrow mindedness of people who want that clear line on everything. And I do think that we once once you've been cancelled once you've been outed as, you know, wrong on something according to, you know, the powers that be currently contemporary cultural uh narrative. Um I think then there, you know, there is much more it's like oh well how about this litmus litmus test? How about this one? How about this one? How about this one? And things that maybe other people get a pass on, we don't get we you know, we don't <laughs> because they they are trying so hard to categorize us and label us and I think that when we defy those labels they it, they try harder. I really do. Yeah.
1: And one of the interesting things about the panel that was canceled by the American Anthropological Association that will be held uh as a webinar now on November 8th is that the there's five speakers and a discussant, right? So Carol Hooven is the discussant and then there's um Kathleen Lowry There's me, there's um, Michelle Soros, um, Kathleen Richardson, and Sylvia Carrasco. Um, I hope I pronounced everybody's name close enough. (laughs) And the thing is that they have very different perspectives on certain aspects of anthropology than I do. We we are united in, in thinking that sex is an important concept, but... We are not united in every aspect of our views on anthropology, and which is why I think it's a it would be um it would have been a great panel to have in person I've joked that even if nobody came to the panel, um we probably would have been arguing with each other you know so but I do think that you know there's this kind of like oh well you you agree on this therefore you must all be lockstep and everything else and that's just not true right
0: right and again it's it's demonstration of of a narrow-mindedness on others parts you know uh you know not not our not our own so um i was thinking even again this is like i'm going you know uh too too far here but you know um if if gender and sex, you know, if if these things maybe te- maybe anthropology anthropology textbooks shouldn't mention gen- sex. Maybe doctors should, you know, I was thinking like, oh, doctors should just treat everyone the same, right? So they shouldn't ask people about, you know, uh, about their their. Gen- it's like, oh, if you're you're throwing up in the morning, uh, I'll just give you anti nausea medicine. We won't we won't consider you know, your, your sex. And again, you know, I know that I'm going, it's like, oh, you're going too far. And yet it feels to us like people are going too far. And, and and I I think they've set the way that they've set the rules, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the bridge too far is we're on it. We're no on, it. on it.
1: I think that that's a very good way of putting it. The bridge too far is we're on it. We're almost over it. You know, yes. uh, we've, we've almost crossed it. Um, and you talk about changes in textbooks. They are making those changes. We talked about medical, uh, doctors and medicine. They are making those, those kinds of changes in medical training. And this is going to have horrific consequences for everybody. It's not just going to have bad consequences for women. It will have bad consequences for men as well. And for those who transitioned and detransitioners, of course, there's just no escape that erasing the the importance of biological sex will not be negative on, on understanding human health, human biology. Um, I you know I've been reading a lot for my talk and I've been looking at some of the the research on bone health and you know we see now that individuals who are put on puberty blockers um never reach peak bone mass even at, even if they decide to detransition or go through their transition they don't reach peak bone mass which means that years down the road, decades down the road, they will be having a triple, for men, it's like triple the risk of fractures, of osteoporotic fractures. Um, this is p- putting people at risk of and a... This is no joke because... And this is once, no joke. This once is a, a, Once you
0: start breaking bones, uh, you know, my mother's currently in a wheelchair because of osteoporosis. And, you know, you, you start to see the cognitive effects when somebody you know i mean you know thank god that we're not seeing that at this point but once you go down so it's not just it's not like oh you know so they you know they take bone they take vitamin d and calcium that's not how it works it doesn't work that way and this is a health problem with an aging population that you know is very very
1: serious so you're gonna have you're gonna have a, a a huge wave of osteoporotic individuals that the medical community is not prepared for. There won't be enough, you know, care for these individuals. And, you know, that can a 12 year old assess what that means mm-hmm. that when they well, are no, 65, nothing no. was
0: going to shoot, nothing was bad was going to happen to us when we were 12.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, like I, and I just think that that's why sometimes we don't let children make certain decisions, you know. <laughs> and, and I, I just think that this this has, is going to have a lot of negative consequences. Um, on you know one of the other issues is uh, that I'll be talking about in my talk is about uh, feminization surgery, and one of the things we know. Um, Now, so far is that when you look at the skeleton and you can make a determination between male and female, even when somebody has undergone feminization surgery, so a male who wants to become a woman, um, the forensic databases and so forth will still line that person up as a male. So all the efforts, it's not going to erase binary sex, um, and I'm. I'm not saying that these people shouldn't be able to make these decisions when they're adults, but I'm just saying uh, feminization surgery, medical transitioning does not change biological sex. It changes their gender, but not their sex. And we need to be aware that by erasing uh, the binary sex and researching binary sex, I think we're doing people a huge disfavor, and, we're, and it would affect the most vulnerable people, those individuals who are murdered, for example, who we don't know their identification. If you, if you can't say, let's start at sex and age you're not going to go anywhere. And people might say, oh, well, why don't you just do DNA? DNA is only going to be useful if you have that person already in a record to identify. You first have to narrow it down to, you know, sex, age, how they died, you know, things like that. And then once you've narrowed it down and look at databases of, you know, who's missing and so forth, then you can do DNA. And, but it's, D- DNA is remarkable, but DNA alone is not the the solution. Well people
0: are addicted to it because they grew up this people grew up on uh on um, on what
1: uh like bones it? and CSI. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean my students went and I'm sure you saw it too, you mentioned forensic anthropology before and it's you know, that was a big uh uh, that was a big, a big deal there for a while. You know, I mean, students go through phases of, of right. what they're most interested right. in, but that was, boy, that was big for a while. Um, so um, I am, I I want to make sure that we've, um, you know, that, that you don't have anything else on your list that you want to talk about. I also want you to plug one more time. We will link in the podcast to your books and to the website and a few other things that you sent me that you wrote so that people can read your Quillette, uh, article and what well, is, was it spike? Um, uh, so a couple of yes. other things, we'll put those in, in the podcast notes. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity to say anything that you didn't feel like you didn't get to, to mention and, um, and, and encourage people of, doesn't have to be academics, right. To come to your, right. right, right.
1: That's true. Um, I mean, you have, I, to be a member of Heterodox Academy, you must be an academic. Right. But to um, to watch the webinar, you do not have to be an academic, um, and you um, you can either register for it. There's a um, there's a registration link on the Heterodox Academy website, but also um, as mentioned, it will be posted, and it's on November 8th, I believe. From um, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. It will start with a brief introduction by John Tomasi, who is heterodox president currently. Um, then there will be the five talks, I believe. Um, each one's 15 minutes. And ending with a discussant, Carol Hooven, who's the author of um, T Testosterone. And, um, and then time for questions. Time for questions and answers. Um, only those people who register can ask questions. So if you want to ask questions, make sure to register, um, and and the registration will be limited to a certain number because of that. But, but it will be live streamed on YouTube as well, and the link will be there. So if you're one of these people who's like, I'm not going to ask a question, that's okay. You can still watch it. Um, live and, stream and we'll we'll.
0: Non-academics or somebody like me who's in psychology, will we be able to
1: understand what you're talking about? I think so. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, I pride myself with is making my um, talks, whether um, whether they are for an academic audience or not, um, accessible to a wide audience. I think that anthropology is such an exciting field. There's so much to learn that I want as many people as possible to understand it and enjoy it. And so um, I can't speak for everybody in the panel, but mine will be understandable by uh, a wide audience. Um, I've even gone through and made sure that I don't use like, um, yeah, I don't say um, things like, a mandible without also mentioning that that's a jawbone.
0: bone this is so relevant to all of us right now in another way which is that a lot of artifacts are appearing because of um you know droughts um in in certain places uh you know like there's there's other reasons why this is really interesting to you know people who are just seeing this kind of thing in the news where new bones, new artifacts are being revealed, right?
1: Yeah, and one of the fascinating things about anthropology is that every year there's something new. Um, I hope that we can continue to study these with as an objective eye as possible, but whether it's because of droughts or or torrential rains that uncover things or, um, you know, planned excavations or construction. You know, um, mm-hmm. several years ago, when they were redoing the Athens underground, um, they, you know, whole cities were discovered. Wow. Um, so there's always something new. Um, I I ha- I get quite a lot of emails from people sending me like, have you seen this? And um, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I saw that. And sometimes I'm like, no, that's fascinating. Um, the other thing is re-examinations of old remains, of remains that have been preserved, which is one of the important reasons to preserve skeletal collections, is because we can re-examine them with newer, better tools to fine-tune our understanding. Um, Just, I saw just the other day an article um, that mentioned the uh, re-examination of a um, donated, uh, forensic collection called the Hammond Todd collection from Cleveland that looked at frailty, frailty, and mor- mortality in 1918. So during this um, the 1918 uh, influenza, right? Um, to compare it, how you know the COVID 19 deaths, and to help us understand pandemics more closely, uh, or, or more fully, I should say. So new discoveries all the time, and reanalyses of discoveries. And this is why retaining collections is so important.
0: Well, I am looking forward to your talk. I hope that other people who see this uh, will sign up and 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 tune in or, or watch the live stream. Again, we'll post everything, and um, I guess a, uh, we should end on that positive note, right?
1: Thank, thank you so much for having me on. It was a great, uh, great conversation. So happy to meet you. Yeah, thank you, thank you for being here with us.